was not just a direct environmental impact, but they also attempted to deeply influence the people's subjectivity. Hello, this is Overexposed, a podcast series about pollution and its effects on everything living and non-living. In every episode, we speak to participants of the Sonic Act's Overexposed residency program. And today we speak to architect and researcher Amine Salati about floating schools in the marshlands of Iraq and how they represent environmental and political conflict. My name is Arif. And I am Andrea. And in every episode of this podcast, we ask a resident to bring an artifact that has moved their practice in a lasting way. That can be a song, a sound, a piece of text. In the past episode, we had Arjuna, who brought a feeling, tenderness. And in this episode, Amene brought an image that you can see in the podcast note. So, yes, I shared an image that shows a floating bed of reeds in the marshes uh, in Iraq during the early 80s. Um, there are desks lined up with children sitting behind them, just like any classroom, uh, facing a teacher, um, attentively listening to him. Uh, this man with a full black suit and a tie, Uh, with a stick pointing at a blackboard, uh, at what seems to be English text. It appears to be that uh, the students are learning uh, English grammar. Uh, and the only other object within that classroom is, uh, the open-air classroom is a, a pole and an Iraqi flag. And you also see in the background floating homes made of weed. So how did you choose this image? How did, you, how did this come up when we asked you to send an artifact? So when our conversation yeah, started, when was it uh, in, back in April, right? When you asked me to choose an artifact uh, that has moved my work in a lasting way. So I actually struggled to find that one thing that encapsulates my practice. I went through my documents, through my archives, Uh, through folders and folders of images and things that I've collected uh, in the past. And obviously there was a lot that provoked me in a certain way or instigated uh, a certain project and so on. But then I realized that the moment that uh, something actually leaves a lasting impact on me uh, by let's say changing how I view something or by revealing something new to me is not the moment that I come in contact with the artifact, but actually the moment happens when a connection is drawn between two artifacts, or let's say more, it's more likely that it's an artifact and a piece of knowledge about something, it's an historic event or, um, I don't know, a fact, a scientific piece of knowledge. It could be a practice, a ritual. So, so I, think the, I think the impactful moment uh, that occurs that changes me in a lasting way is when the artifact is placed against something else against uh, or discussed in relation to something else beyond what it appears to say at face value. So the connection, the relationships that you can uh, build through it uh, and not only with it. So, yeah, uh, you could say, I guess you could say how it is contextualized uh, or even more than that, I suppose, 
when it is placed within a much bigger question. So, yeah, and looking back now, I think that's how I often approach the topic uh, and that's how I chose the artifact. It is actually, I think, a great example of what I'm saying here um, because, the, because the face value of the images that I show, it's basically what you see first is perseverance, right? You, like, it's against all odds, like... Wow, the importance given to education, uh, the adaptability, uh, that the authorities were not deterred by the environment of the marshes. They worked with uh, what they had and they sent their best dressed teachers. And not only that, they also uh, teach them to be, teach the students to be multilingual. Uh, they try to reach these isolated societies. Uh, and uh, give them access to education. Uh, it all seems great, right? But what often what often happens with these places um, that go through a lot of political unrest, that go through a lot of conflict, wars, uh, colonization, um, invasion, and more in different ways, uh, what the people do is, I think, reminisce. Um, it is essentially, I think, a form of coping mechanism. When your situation is so bad, what you do is look for forms of hope. And that is how you find hope, is to remind yourself that once things were better, uh, and they could be better again. So it's also a way, I guess, it's also a way to to affirm yourself, to affirm that your current situation, your history, um, that uh, to affirm to yourself that you're more than that. You're more than the victim to these situations. So you look back, you reminisce, uh, and it becomes a form of self-affirmation. Um, yeah, and I think that becomes, reminiscing becomes a form to fuel your perseverance. It's a form of building strength. It's not to lose hope. It's, um, yeah, basically it's a way to survive. And often this operates, I think, in conscious and subconscious ways. Um, so you don't necessarily always know that. It's, you're, you're not always necessarily aware that it's happening. Uh, but either way, I think it's a very, I still think it's a valid and effective mo method in many ways uh, in how to overcome adversity and hardship but yeah but this is I think when the, where the artifact comes is where where the or where the problem begins is when our efforts to survive to look back at better times uh, actually distorts our reality it skews the past it skews the actual facts of that time we often don't see maybe be, beyond what is immediately shown to us or told to us, uh, we don't realize that perhaps, let's say as oppressed people, how that what we see in the image or the film or what we hear in a recording might also, which is which could be hopeful to us, could be an act of oppression to other groups. How do you think this specific maybe way of seeing that you described, way of seeing this artifact, is connected to the method? Uh, you are developing for this research? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I think this is why I chose the art artifacts in particular because uh, I saw this and I knew it had more to say than just that, but I didn't know at the time what yet. So I just saved it and I moved on with the research. And then after learning about the area, the region in particular, the history of the people's resistance against oppression, the social injustice, uh, the efforts of the indigenous people uh, in the marshlands to be autonomous, uh, how different ruling powers within the region attempted to control the environment, uh, to control the people, uh, the national ideologies that were imposed on the people and also on the natural environment, um, the violence that the people endured and the natural environment also endured. Um, uh, for example, there were acts of burning villages, but they also poisoned, electrocuted the water, they used chemical agents. All of this made this seemingly positive image to me actually more of an evidence against the regime at the time, rather than this positive uh, image of perseverance and hope and all of that, that you usually, that would be the first impression of looking at it. And this is, I think, what we also struggle with is looking, there are so many examples of this. I mean, like uh, during past research I've done, uh, and also works I've read about, for example, these in the region, for example, in Iran and Afghanistan, there are these images of these liberated women uh, in westernized clothing uh, during um, the 50s and the 60s. And they resemble this like liberated uh, time. But actually, actually, if you look at the history of the time for women, uh, they had very little access to education, very little access to uh, the work environment in comparison to what's happening right now. And there is this anecdote uh, of when Trump was presented with one of these images of women in Afghanistan in miniskirts and in like Western looking clothing during, I'm not sure when, what is, uh, when was it, it was sometimes I think in the 60s or 70s. And it was a form of, they showed it to him to convince him to keep the troops, the American troops in Afghanistan, it actually worked. That image basically of the women was a way to look, to think of an alternative future for uh, the country when it was actually, if you look back at the time, it's, there is a lot more to the context than just that image. And also during my research in the past, I've researched the domestic space uh, of the Iranian homes and also the transformation of Western uh, efforts to um, to westernize to westernize Iran through uh, the home economics uh, program by initiated by uh, the United States. So basically, it was about how to change, transform, completely transform the domestic sphere, the Iranian home, from like simple things such as how a rug is positioned to furniture to the use of chairs instead of sitting on the floor to use of home appliances to transforming how the uh, how the home is designed how it is practiced so i think that's how generally that's how i yeah that's how i approach research problems i would like to go back to the image and ask you to unpack a little bit 
what's happening and how the this artifact goes into conversation with others and what uh, I mean how you can also read this artifact because you're already hinting at the kind of political landscape but I think it would be great if you could yeah elaborate a little bit on on what this image also symbolizes yeah so yeah schools and other public facilities such as clinics and more were actually solutions of how to deal with the Marsh Arabs um, because the Marsh people were famous for their autonomy. They resisted uh, governance and authority. So it was a way to enact control, actually, to tame the untainable. So schools were actually a part of a larger project to enact control. Uh, they involved infrastructural projects. It involved even uh, healthcare because one of the ways to eradicate the marshlands was also that the wetlands were supposedly a breeding ground for diseases. At some point, even mosquitoes were like, and the possible diseases they can cause were a valid reason to change the entire natural environment of the marshes, which might be true that the mosquitoes were causing some health issues, but to change the entire natural environment was, uh, or desiccated was uh, not the solution. So, Yeah, schools was once uh, was um, was a method, but was one method, but which tells us uh, so much about the mechanisms used to influence the marshes and the people, and what at what levels they operate. It was not just a direct environmental impact, but they also attempted to deeply influence the people's subjectivity about the marshes. Uh, Uh, for example, the curriculums uh, that were taught in, uh, in the schools, they were geared towards making the students resent their rural living. The Marsh people did want to be educated and they did want to provide education to their children, but they also didn't want to create this rupture within not only the society, but also within the, within the environment as well. It was a, another project of creating this distinction between man and nature, basically. If we look back, it's, it wasn't new at the time. These, like, if you, the further you go back in the history of Iraq and the marshes, you realize that every ruling power had its own implicit and explicit agendas. To the extent that uh, when the Ottomans uh, ruled Iraq and the marsh people also resisted that, there were projects to change the subjectivity of the people. The marsh people in Iraq are called the Madan. And it went as far to use that word as a slur. So basically, to this day in Iraq, the word Ma'dan, which refers to a, a specific ethnic group, the, indi the indigenous people of the Marshall, is used as a, as a slur to reference like uncivilized people, to ref reference uh, lack of taste, lack of civility. So, and if you ask most people, they would tell, some wouldn't even know the origins of the word and others would tell you, yeah, it refers to rural people or the people of the marshes. It reveals how like the mechanisms of changing the subjectivity of people, it was like on such a deep level that it wasn't just changing the environment, changing, uh, displacing people, uh, desiccating the marshes. It was also changing how people Uh, perceived the natural environment, how they perceived the people of, that inhabited the natural environment. What do you think it is about 
wetlands, marshlands, uh, water that lends itself for exclusion because this narrative we also see in other places, right? I, as you were talking, I was thinking about uh, the film by Guzman, the Chilean filmmaker called The Pearl Button that speaks about indigenous pre-Chilean people who were uh, traveling water uh, and along the coastline of, of Chile and were also subject of similar I would, exclusionary politics. Do you have any thoughts on the, the role of water here? Yeah, I think what is specifically interesting about this because the marshlands, the wetlands, uh, often people rely on water by living in proximity to it. But in this case, people were living within it. They were completely reliant on it and it was completely part of their modes of living. It wasn't just something that they needed for certain things. It was part of their livelihood, part of their how they sustained themselves. They, yeah, they lived on it. They lived within it. They were, tra they trans their trans main transportation method was water. So that created challenges for the government to control such space. It's super challenging because it's also, um, it's basically the marshlands is a maze of these waterways and lagoons that is very hard to map also because they are reliant on um, water melts from the mountains in, uh, in Turkey and in northern Iraq. So they have these seasonal floods, so they continue to change. They shift uh, edges, their edges change, their shapes change. So they're hard to, to map, they're hard to discern, they're hard to navigate through. It's very hard to distinguish one waterway from the other. So the only people that actually have uh, a significant knowledge about it are the people that have lived within it for years and years and have passed knowledge, uh, inherited knowledge from uh, their ancestors, and which is mainly also oral. It's oral history that is shared between them. It is not based on maps and drawings and um, the traditional forms that we know of uh, marking territory or uh, uh, navigating land and waters. So that obviously has, uh, yeah, has made it Uh, difficult to control and not only that it's also difficult uh, it's geographic location it's in the uh, by the borders between Iraq and Iran so it also created this weak vulnerable geographic position for Iraq it could enable infiltration yeah it enabled refuge in the past so political factions that have Uh, risen against the regime in the early 90s, they uh, sought refuge within the marshes and were embraced by the marsh people. And uh, it allowed actually the uprising to continue much longer than it did in, within the cities. But obviously at the end, uh, um, the government was able to enact control. If not directly through uh, fighting them within the marshes, they were able to enact control through infrastructure projects. So through uh, dams, through causeways, through uh, locks, through uh, uh, artificial waterways, uh, rivers, uh, artificial rivers, uh, every possible uh, water uh, method to uh, divert water from the marshes. And that's what led uh, to the desiccation of it in the uh, early 90s. You speak about, a lot about retelling the story. 
which for me it's very strong about like no we have been like talking about how you encounter all these materials and like the connection like the connections you, f you find between them but I'm curious about what are your tools maybe also because you you work as an editor in fail architecture and you also have a uh, like in this residency you're like kind of writing but I I would like to really know how 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 do you work with this and how do you approach this idea of retelling the the story somehow when you look at the region and all the different like violence that happens that like atrocious acts that happen within there it's really hard to when lives are at stake it's really hard to actually or you get rare uh, opportunities to tackle the environment because it becomes secondary. But with the marshes, it was I thought I felt like it was the perfect balance to discuss the two because the the uh, stories of injustice and sto uh, stories of uh, ethnic injustice and environmental injustice was so weaved together. So this is why it was important for me to yeah uh, go back to the history of it, try to, yeah, try to uh, distinguish these connections, try to highlight them, try to um, understand them from a different lens, from the lens of social injustice rather than just an, an ecocide that is detached from what's happening uh, to the people that inhabit it. We're also really curious to hear where do you do research, what do you What, what attracts you in an archive, you know, what do you pull out basically? Yeah, um, so what I did basically when you talk about archives in such region, it's really difficult because a lot of the archives are either destroyed, they're lost during the wars, um, they're also, uh, some of them are intentionally destroyed by people because they could be used against them, uh, especially in the case of Iraq, like anything could, at the time of the Ba'ath regime, um, anything that could, um, that could challenge the government could be used against you. So people would uh, destroy image, uh, their photographs, they would destroy books, they would burn them, bury them, in any form of shape uh, or shape to disassociate themselves from uh, being a target or to be uh, prosecuted for this. So, um, and obviously the government also didn't keep records open to the public uh, for obvious reasons. And then the American invasion happened and whatever was present or what they were able to capture is now protected and guarded by American institutions is not open to the public. So, yeah, it was quite challenging to actually find material, to find resources, to find stories. So I resorted to, um, uh, I resorted to anthropological work from back before the Ba'ath regime, uh, and also uh, things that have been written by people outside of Iraq, but had connections. Uh, I resorted to, uh, yeah, um, to uh, uh, sat uh, imagery, um, satellite imagery. Uh, I resorted to, yeah, a lot of a lot of it's also in relation to like histories that uh, we I carry through just being from 
that part of the world from that country. So um, I I was able to like put ev- all the historic events, all these stories in relation to what I know from my own experience uh, as also a displaced uh, Iraqi. So that also helped. I think it helped a lot just having personal history in the region and knowing the ideology uh, that the government operated behind. Uh, I could translate this ideology also within this new environment. I guess even though there's a regime change, what we seem to see quite often is that the mechanisms of power stay the same or they shapeshift but I'm wondering if you see a similar kind of you know mechanism applied today uh, if this also is a way of maybe speaking about the present by looking to the past yeah uh, when I started to look at the natural environment um, of the marshes and the water infrastructures a lot of my research is also Uh, focuses on the infrastructures that led to its desiccation. So it really made me question the natural in the natural environment. So if something that is seemingly natural, but is directly controlled by an infrastructure that dictates how much water goes where and does what, how is that still classified or categorized as natural, right? There, there's this, Question, it's still a question that I'm grappling with and I don't have answers to, but it also reveals the complexity of the issue. Um, I remember reading somewhere by, uh, by a, a hydrology expert that says, uh, he said, it's not rocket science, it's actually far more complicated than that in reference to the water in Iraq and the marshes. And yeah, that really uh, describes uh, the experience of researching this Um But yeah, it's it's in the case of Iraq or in general, it's easy, it's relatively easy to distinguish how land is regulated or controlled, right? But when with water um, and in the case of Iraq, uh, it's complicated because the two main rivers, uh, Tigris and Euphrates, uh, Euphrates, don't actually originate in Iraq, but they originate in Turkey and then they run through Syria before they get to Iraq. And also some of the rivers that feed the marshes originate in Iran. So basically this element that runs across the whole length of the country and feeds it essentially is out of the people's control or even the state's control. It's beyond borders, beyond the national borders. So currently, for example, Turkey is constructing dams and hydropower on the Tigris and Euphrates, are, which are estimated to have, they cut the power, uh, uh, sorry, they have cut water uh, to Iraq in around 80% since 1975. So this is like, we're not even talking about what Ba'ath regime did to desiccate the marshes. This is even beyond that. So, yeah, jeopardizing the agriculture, the natural environment. Um, and, and the marshes is affected the most because it's at the southern region of the country. So it's the last place to be fed with water. So, yeah, that results in decline in water and desertification, uh, salination, um, mismanagement and 
especially in a region that already suffers from a lot of other issues. Um, uh, so yeah, this is one of the main uh, challenges right now. What what is happening outside Iraq? Actually, we have moved from developmental projects within Iraq. We have moved from security projects within Iraq that had influenced the marshes to actually now uh, things that are outside the country's control. And uh, yeah, it's uh, water diplomacy basically. We are kind of arriving to the end of the of conversation. So we would like to know more about how how are you planning to or like how are you working with this research in the context of the Sonic Art uh, residency? Uh, yeah, so the research basically um, uh, required the residency required a long piece of te uh, research text. So um, and uh, a journal of archival findings of visuals, maps, uh, drawings, whatever um, in relation to the topic, relevant to the topic. So that's what I focused on for now is basically to retell the story um, with a focus on the natural environment and how to weave these two struggles together, the social injustice and the natural environment. And I feel like it's going to be a jumping off point for, as I said, this is not something that I've been researching in the past. It's a new, uh, a new area for me when it comes to water specifically. So um, I feel like this piece of uh, writing that I will uh, do and the research that I've done so far will be a jumping off point for so many other projects uh, in the future.